0: Podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Panama, 1917. A small boy, barely eight, is watching a game of rounders in a small village. He is sitting curiously on the sideline. As suddenly a ball is hit towards him. Instinctively he leaps up from the ground, sticks out his right arm, and plucks it. The men who are playing are amazed and asked the boy whether he'll play in their game the following Sunday. The young man George Hedley, looks up and says he'll have to speak to his parents first. Hedley was born in 1909 in Panama, where his father worked on the Panama Canal project. Hedley was a strange cricketer, a young black man who was born in Panama with his Jamaican mother and Bayesian father. At 10, his parents realized that he only spoke Spanish, so they sent him to Jamaica, where the idea was for him to eventually become a dentist in the United States of America. But it was in Jamaica that Headley first discovered cricket. He worked multiple jobs to support his career and even played wicketkeeper for a school team once without any gloves, as they couldn't afford any equipment. Despite the adversity, he quickly blossomed into a school star in Jamaica, renowned for his superb backfoot play and incredible timing. However, when he got to 18, he actually committed to study dentistry in America just so he could earn a stable wage. However, there was a delay in approving his passport, which meant that he was selected in a game against an English touring team led by Lord Tennyson. He scored 78 in the first match, and 218 in the second. Dentistry's loss was cricket's gain. It's incredible to think that at that time, Headley went on to be the best test batter outside of Bradman. But what's more remarkable isn't Headley's story itself, it's the entire story of West Indies cricket a team that was divided both geographically and racially. West Indies cricket was a mishmash of all these different things, talent, opportunity, and race, and class, and colour. And through all that, they only had to go and play England, the team that had pretty much colonised most of the islands. Welcome to Double Century, the podcast on the history of cricket. This series we're looking at teams' first great wins over England, Today is the West Indies turn, where we discuss the birth of Bodyline, one great family, the men that it created, and an extraordinary win that changed their cricket forever. Cricket really started in the West Indies in the 1880s, and at first they played against teams from the United States and Canada. The first English team toured the Caribbean in 1894, playing 16 matches, of which 8 were considered to be first class. In 1900, the brother of future England captain Plub Warner, Orchard Warner, captained the first ever West Indies side to tour England. This side contained only five black players and ten white players, including a batter by the name of LeBron Constantine. I remember that surname. LeBron was the grandson of a slave who scored the West Indies' first ever century on that 1900 tour. He was a cocoa plantation worker and he had three sons, all of whom played cricket. And one of them was named after a charismatic Irishman named Leary he met on that tour of England. Leary Constantine is much more famous than his father, LeBron. But despite the fact that he wanted to play cricket, his father always pushed him towards becoming a lawyer. And he worked as a clerk for a firm of solicitors in Port of Spain in Trinidad. But while he may have been a good lawyer, he was, quite clearly, one of the world's greatest cricketers. A batting average of 20 and a bowling average of 30 doesn't look particularly incredible but the impact that Leary Constantine had on certain games was undeniable. He was an attacking batter, a fast bowler, and an electric fielder. If you need a modern-day comp, think Andre Russell. He could whack it, he could bowl fast, and he was pretty much everywhere in the field. He was first selected for the West Indian Tour of England in 1925, and the series didn't go quite as well as he'd hoped, although his fielding stood out. But when he got home, he realised he had lost his clerking position. And due to the fact that most of the permanent work went to white people, he worked a number of part-time jobs to support his cricketing career. It's actually quite incredible to think of all that now, as he would later be called up to the bar, appointed to the Trinidadian High Commission to England, be knighted and become the first black peer in English history. He's remembered as an absolute legend of West Indian and even English cricket. His legacy is largely for what he did off the field, but it is important to remember what he did when he played as well. In 1925, he knew he had to get better as a cricketer, so when he came back in 1928, he was a much better player, and his aim when he came back was not to star for the West Indies, although obviously he wanted to play well for them, but his real aim was to get a job playing league cricket in England. That's where he saw his future. And part of that has to be discussed as West Indian cricket of this period cannot be talked about without exploring the racial undertones within cricket and the region at the time. Whites in the West Indies represented the very top echelon of society. Black players, or black people for that matter, according to historian Tony Cozier, were not considered to have the political, social, or sporting ability to lead governments or even cricket teams. When the MCC made their first tour in 1929-30, all the decisions, from where the games would be played to who played in them, the ticket prices, everything, were made by white people. In Barbados, which would go on to be one of the most incredible factories of cricket talent that we will ever see the black basians played the role of the fast bowlers and the fielders for the net sessions while the whites batted this was part of west indian cricket and of course the society and it wasn't just at home that they were facing racism ahead of their first tour in 1900 to england the star ran a racist cartoon of a group of small black urchins surrounding the gigantic figure of wg grace and pleading we've come to learn sir however charles olivier got the most runs on that tour Tommy Burton and Float Woods got the most wickets and Leary Constantine made West Indies first 100. All four were black men. Of the 230 wickets of the West Indian bowlers took on that tour, Burton got 78 and Woods got 72. Burton also bowled WG twice. Burton would tour England again six years later but he was sent back home after playing just two matches. A vague reason was provided. They said that Burton was reluctant to perform menial duties for the white players. He returned to his home in Barbados, but couldn't find a job there, and he ended up emigrating to Panama. Despite all the early racism, West Indies cricket actually kept making leaps and bounds right through the early 1900s. A 1923 tour of England was seen as a huge success, with the team being very competitive against many of England's leading counties. In 1926, they were admitted to being a test-playing nation, a landmark accomplishment for the team. But their first tour of England in 1928 did not go well. This was a team before George Headley. It was a wet summer. Their players were not conditioned for the amount of cricket they were about to play. They had a lack of experience, and wisdom characterised the tour as a mistake the West Indies only won five out of their 30 matches. They lost to teams like Oxford Harlequins, the Minor Counties, and even Ireland. But one of those wins did make an impact. At Lords, they played Middlesex, and reportedly the crowds had flocked just to see Leary Constantine. He was popular on the previous tour, but by now he was a major star because of his feeling, his speed, and his ability to hit the ball. In the West Indies' first innings, he entered the wicket well behind the follow-on target, so he smashed his 50 in 18 minutes. A couple of minutes later, he was on 86, and the follow-on had been smashed, and he had scored over 50 more runs than any of his teammates. Leary took the new ball in the second innings. Middlesex were bowled out for 136, and Constantine bowled fast. Only the great Patsy Hendren, with his test average almost at 50, had the ability to withstand him, for a while at least. Constantine ended up with 7 for 57. Five batters were bowled. At one point, he took 6 for 11 in six overs. The West Indies had to chase 250, and their top order all got starts but kept getting out. At seven, in-walked Leary. They still needed more than half the total. Constantine batted for an hour, allegedly exactly 60 minutes. He made 103 and broke a bowler's hand in that magic hour. Probably one of the great hours in cricket history. The West Indies beat Middlesex by three wickets. Five years later, Dennis Compton started playing for Middlesex and according to him, the players were still talking about Leary's match. But the test didn't go that way. England's full-strength team of Larwood, Tate, and a young Wally Hammond schooled a very green, raw West Indian side on the challenges of test cricket. England swept the series by an innings in all three tests, leading many within English circles to question the inclusion of the West Indies in the Imperial Cricket Conference, or as we now know it, the ICC. However, the MCC had already committed to playing them and another new team, New Zealand, in the winter of 1929-30. There were a couple of problems with this. The first was that there was going to be an Ashes series that was going to be played that summer, meaning most of the English team wanted to rest before the big series. And secondly, the MCC committed to playing two teams at the same time. It was, and remains, I suppose, one of the strangest moments to occur in the history of Test cricket. The MCC played two Test series at the same time, one in New Zealand and one in the Caribbean. So while Harold Gilligan, England captain, versus New Zealand, watched day two of the first test in Christchurch be washed out, England captain Freddie Calthorpe led a veteran MCC side onto the field at Bridgetown Barbados. It remains the only time when a country has played two tests on the same day. The squad to play the West Indies was very good and incredibly experienced. However, by experienced, I kind of mean quite old. Opening batter George Gunn was 51, 51. All-rounders Evan Astill and Nigel Hage were 41 and 42, and the oldest player in the team was Wilfred Rhodes, who was 52. Calthorpe was captain, but he had never played for England before. However, he was considered to have the diplomatic skills and nuance required to lead the MCC tour. Comparatively, the West Indies had an absolute hodgepodge. In four tests, they would play 28 players. Only two players, George Headley and Clifford Roach, played all four tests. There were intra-island politics. Each test was played on a different island, with a different selection panel and a different captain. The first test saw a very fiercely contested draw as the MCC came up against Roach in the first innings and Hedley in the second. LeBron Constantine had been the first West Indian to make 100 representing the team, but Roach became the first West Indian to make a test 100. But the test would be drawn. The second test saw England's best batter on the tour, Patsy Hendren, hit 205 not out as Bill Vos skittled the host with 7 for 70 in the second innings. The third test saw another rotation in captaincy for the West Indies, this time with Morris Fernandez taking the reins in Georgetown. He was a white man born in Guyana, and there was never any thought to give the captaincy to Roach, Constantine or Headley, despite the fact of their obvious qualifications for the job, on and off the field in some cases. Roach was a lawyer, Fernandes was by no means a bad player. He scored over 2,000 first-class runs. However, his record pales in comparison to some of the rest of the team. It was a racial and political move to make him a captain of this side. But it was George Headley and Roach who dominated England. Roach hit the first-ever double century by a West Indian, and Headley would be run out for 114, meaning that the West Indies made 471 in their first innings. Constantine and George Francis, Dismissed England for 145. Francis only played one test in the series, partly because he was only given one week's leave by his employer. He was aged 32 at the time and was considered well beyond his peak, which came in 1923 when he tore through a strong lineup in England. West Indies went back into bat and they stumbled a bit. Lots of quick wickets, except for George Headley, who made another hundred and basically set up an impossible task for England, meaning they needed to chase 617 runs. At the end of day four, England were 102 for three, but Patsy Hendren and Les Ames were batting. Not exactly normal batters. Les Ames was the greatest wicketkeeping batter that we had right up until basically modern cricket changed forever. He was the only wicket-keeper who could bat realistically and was probably the first great all-round wicketkeeping bat. Patsy Hendren would make 57,000 first-class runs and an average of over 50. Even when England didn't have full-strength teams... When they toured, they still had players of this quality to be able to send. It didn't mean it was likely that England were going to chase 617 because that was pretty much gone, but it did make it possible for them to draw the match. Ames only made three though. He went out to Constantine, one of his five victims. But England batted and batted on. And this was a five-day test. If they got to stumps, they were going to be able to draw this game and most probably save the series. The West Indies tried everything. They used Eight bowlers, Headley Bold, Clifford Roach Bold, Charles Jones Bold, Vibet White Bold. And the main problem wasn't England. England were not particularly good. Most of their batters were disappearing, as handy as they were. The main problem was Patsy Hendren. All those runs, all that experience, all that skill, and the West Indies could not get past him. Captain Calthorpe made 49, and George Gunn made 45. No one else even passed 30. Hendren made 123, and he batted at the end of day four and all the way through on day five. And just before stumps, it looked like he was going to be able to get England that draw. That's when Edwin St. Hill got him LBW. Edwin St. Hill didn't really cut it as a test match player. He only ever took three wickets in his two tests. It just happened to be that one of them was Patsy Hendren on that day. Hendren was the ninth wicket to fall, and not long after that, George Francis took the 10th. They were bowled out for 327, with 15 minutes before stumps. In only their second test series, the West Indies had beaten England, a team with Wilfred Rhodes, Les Ames, Patsy Hendren in it. An incredible effort. With the series tied at one all heading into that final test, the administrators of both teams decided to play the final match at Sabina Park Cricket Ground until the finish. A timeless test. When we think of timeless tests, we often think of the match in Durban in 1938 as the most memorable example of both teams tying to a result, but this particular match went on for nine days before England were forced to set sail back to Southampton. The match itself was quite interesting. England player Annie Sander made the first triple century ever in test cricket, batting for 10 hours, although at the time no one was sure if that actually was a test match, so he didn't realise he had done so. England was eventually bowled out for 849, having a first innings lead at 563. But England would actually bat again and make an extra 272, meaning that the West Indies needed 836 for victory. In the final innings, George Headley, trying to keep the West Indies to a draw, played an absolutely extraordinary knock, hitting 223 over two days. However, at 404 for five, with still over 400 runs to win, England looked a sure victory at the end of day seven. Luckily for the West Indies, with constant rain over the next two days, the tourists were forced to draw the match and head back on their boat. The West Indies had won their first test against England and they had drawn their first series. George Hadley didn't stop being good at this point. In fact, he continued to be incredible. He had two outstanding tours of Australia and England in the early 1930s. And before World War II, he played 19 tests and scored 2,135 runs and an average of 66.71. He made an incredible 26.5% of the West Indies runs in that period and he converted 10 of his 15 50-plus scores into 100s, a conversion rate bettered only by Bradman. His first six fifties in test cricket were 176, 114, 112, 223, 102 not out, and 105. He only played 22 tests in total, and World War II certainly ate many of his greatest years. There was other interesting parts of this series as well, though. Though England is far more famous for body line or fast leg theory, or literally whatever you want to call it, bowling at the body, it's quite clear that the West Indies worked it out earlier and used it a couple of times. And that should be no surprise as we saw what West Indies cricket did next. But this 1929-30 series was important. It really meant that the West Indies were a competitive international side, far more so than what New Zealand would go on to be. When they would tour Australia the following summer, they won their first ever test overseas. And it wasn't exactly friendly conditions in Australia. The non-white players were forced to leave the country as soon as the series was finished due to the white Australia policy implemented at the time. And in 1935, they secured their first series win over England. And in 1950, they won their first test in England. But it was probably that series in 1929-30 that really changed cricket in the Caribbean, made it a much more popular game. Suddenly, they had the ability to square a series with England at home. There was something about the colonial nature of cricket that you could go up against England and bounce them and beat them that really, really inspired Caribbean fans. But it's not like the racism and classism went away. It obviously stuck around with West Indies cricket for a long time. With one exception until 1960 for George Headley, every manager, captain or vice-captain of a West Indian touring team to England was white. Headley only captained the team once in 1948, a token measure which only came after significant political manoeuvring. I mean, what is remarkable about that is that the brilliance of Hedley, Constantine, Francis and Roach offered a glimpse of what West Indies cricket was going to be, but the political climate did not allow it to fully come out. Let's just think about that young boy from Panama for a minute. George Hedley was a different kind of man. He simply couldn't understand why others would play stupid shots, why others would get tired, why others would give away a start. When he saw a player do something stupid, he would often say, why him don't like to bat? It was thought that he could hit the ball anywhere he wanted on the field. His placement was so incredibly precise that Hedley actually spent a lot of his time hitting to where the bowlers were fielding so he could tie them out. When a spinner would come on, allegedly he'd run down the wicket straight away and smash the ball back at them along the ground to try and injure their hands. That's super villain batting. He thought about cricket on an elevated level. That's why when World War II began, he was averaging 66 This was clearly one of the best and smartest cricketers our game has ever had. And because of his skin colour, he wasn't allowed to be a full-time captain and was only allowed to do the job once. And it's a sad story. But because of Roach and Headley and the Constantines, one day this would change. And cricket would feel the full force of the West Indies. Players like Headley and Constantine were replaced by Worrell, Weeks and Walcott, who became Sobers, Canai and Hall, who later became Lloyd, Holding and Richards. At first, there was a thought that the ICC had made a mistake in letting the West Indies in. Fifty years later, they would be the greatest cricket team that we had ever seen. In 1929-30, they used almost every player in their region, were captained by four different white men, and they still beat England in a test. It's no surprise what happened when the shackles were finally off. Thanks for listening to Double Century. This podcast was made entirely possible by our supporters at Patreon. The link is in the show notes if you'd like to support us into the future. This show was written and narrated by me, Jared Kimber. It was co-written by Max Wiggins, who also did the original research. Additional research and fact-checking was by Abhishek Mukherjee. This episode was written by Max Wiggins, not myself, because I had broken my arm and Max stepped up. Big thanks to him and also Abhishek Mukherjee, who obviously took a slightly more expanded role in his fact-checking. Max has been the researcher on most of the episodes so far and is a young Australian journalist and has a lot of talent. So it's great to be able to let him write an episode and it's also great because I don't think I would have physically been able to write this episode. And our producer is Nick McCorriston. Thank you so much for listening. But if you do like this show, one of the best ways that you can help support us is just simply by sharing it on social media or rating and reviewing it in your favourite podcast apps. If you like my work and want to follow it more, there is a link in the show notes to Linktree, which will show you where I do, I don't know, TikToks and Instagrams and YouTube and Twitter and other podcasts. Double Century is my podcast about the history of the game, but I have another podcast called Red Inca, which is on the current game. Come over and hear us talking about when Faf Du is topless or why T20 cricket is broken. Red Inca can be found where you listen to your podcasts.